So when you think of the gospel, what comes to your mind? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is that what comes to your mind? The gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark? Do you think of Genesis? <laughs> Not many think of Genesis, do you? I'm here to tell you that I believe the gospel starts out in Genesis. You see, what is the whole purpose of what we call the Bible? Isn't it not the scheme or the plan of God's redemption for mankind? And it starts at the beginning. It starts in Genesis. And I want you to know these things because as we look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3 this morning and see this shadow, we want to see how that fits in with what we typically refer to as the Gospels. In the New Testament, it's easy to see because it's explicit. It's the Gospel we're starting in, or we've been in Mark for the last month or so. And it's the Gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. So it's easy. We know it's the Gospel. We know it's the good news about Jesus Christ. But what we read this morning, and if you were to continue reading through the chapter, would be a shadow of this revealed message. It's just... As, as brethren like to say, concealed, if you will, in the Old Testament. But we have the hindsight now. But we can look in scriptures and actually see the gospel message indicated not only in this particular lesson. We could actually look at other statements in chapter 3 that give indications to the gospel message. And maybe on another lesson we'll add to it and look at this gospel message as indicated in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. In fact, you can start from chapter 1 with the shadows of creation itself, by the way. And so we're looking at not just the uh, New Testament and the, what's easy for us to see as far as the gospel, but some things that God had planned from the very beginning. And that's why I had Michael to read out of Genesis chapter 3 in the first six, six verses. So what we're looking at is the starting place of the scheme of redemption. We're going to start in Genesis and note some shadowy backdrop that gives us an indication if we could look forward the way God had planned eternally for everything to unfold. And of course, then we get to, to see the types and the antitypes that are referred to in the New Testament that help us refer back to the book of Genesis. For instance, when we get to Romans chapter 5 and compare and contrast Adam with Jesus Christ, we will see then the reference back to this area of Scripture that we've just read. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And what it does for us, I believe, is when we go out and teach the gospel to others, we don't have to just stick with the New Testament. You can go to all the scriptures, whether it's pointing to Christ like Dan did this morning, going to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. We can go to a lot of other passages that point us to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing here. We're looking at the gospel, the good news of salvation, and we're going to actually see it from the very beginning. Well, let's start then. Notice the gospel through the fall of Adam and Eve. And we're going to look at some points and we're going to start from here, work our way to one end and kind of come back to the very beginning again. In the end, it's almost like if I could retitle this, which I wouldn't know how to work it on the PowerPoint, it would be back to the future, if you will. Because I think that's kind of the mentality of what's um, shown up in the text here. In Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So we start off with this. And the first thing is that we have a perfect setting, right? If you look at Genesis chapter 1, after God creates man in his image, in verse uh, 30 and 31, he says what? 
He looked upon everything that he had created. And it was very good. And then in the beginning, then in chapter two, he continues on and just kind of summarizes man's creation and then goes from there and talks about man's work. And we see this perfect setting and what God has in store for man while having fellowship with him in this world. I want you to look at Genesis chapter two and see what it says from verse nine following. In verse nine of chapter two, well, let me back up to verse eight. It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he formed. Now, I want you to know this word garden. That's what we get for the word security. It's like this walled area. It's a, it's a safe haven of a, of a place. When we think of garden, we think of, of course, the, the trees and the fruits and, and things of that nature. But here's this garden that he puts man whom he had formed in. And it says in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant, to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here's this perfect setting. God has just created this beautiful universe and this beautiful planet, and then made this gorgeous garden, and there's man. There he is. He's got all kinds of food. And not just food, just for the sake of eating, because my mentality of food for a number of years, even though I enjoy food, was it's a necessity of life. You have to eat it, otherwise you die. And so, real typical. But you know, when I read this, here is God giving it, and it's pleasing to the eyes. Pleasing even to taste. That's what He's made. So, He does this and gives everything at the disposal, except for one thing. One thing. Why wouldn't God just give Him everything and be done with it? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Just eat whatever you want. Don't have to add a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That way there would be no temptation. That way man would always be in fellowship. Do you know that the words I'm using right now has a hiss in it? There's a lot that would be left out if we had it that way. I think from our fleshly minds, that is the best thing. If man never sinned, he never loses fellowship. He never loses fellowship. He's always with God. I want you to stop and think. If that's the case, there'd be a lot that we would miss about our longing for God. And I'm going to share that in just the next slide. But I want you to keep that in the thought of your mind. So now he's given him everything. And we fast forward and we're reading through um, what he expects of man. So now in verse 15... The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to tend and keep it. Okay? So he's, he's got everything in the garden, including the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he's going to tend and keep it. Imagine having to work around every tree, including this one tree you're told, eventually, not the. He goes on to say in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So, I don't know how long it was between this command and when Satan came, but imagine him tending and keeping the garden, and he's just going around every single one, keeping the garden, working it, and there's this one tree I'm not supposed to touch, if you will, not supposed to eat of. I imagine 
that it was not too soon before temptation came in. And temptation came in in light of all these blessings that he already had. Everything is perfect right now. And as we read on in the Scriptures, just as Michael had read for us, we see the serpent who is more cunning than any beast of the field. And here is this serpent that is able to speak. Somehow Satan makes his way and uses this serpent that symbolizes everything of, of a lie and speaks to the woman said in verse um, 2, may we eat of the trees of, of the garden? Well, the woman responds, yeah, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the woman was told by the serpent, you will not surely die. And now she's posed with a dilemma. She's in a perfect setting with her husband. They know what to do. They know how to go about their lives. But now the temptation comes and there's a choice being made. They have this tree of knowledge. And according to the passage here, that when the woman looked at that tree, having been spoken by Satan and providing that temptation. She sees that the food was good. It was pleasant to her eyes. It was desirable to make one wise, whatever that is. And so she took up the fruit and then she gave up her husband. I believe that the fact that God gave us this tree is a good thing. Man is able to stand before God, a creature likened unto his very image, to have a choice. God chose to make man with a choice like unto him. And with this choice, one is able to voluntarily continue and to do what pleases God or not. He has a choice to live within a boundary of God's realm and good pleasure or to go beyond that realm. I believe that's a choice that we see already implied in Scripture that was given to the angels. That's just my personal opinion. Some are told that, you know, angels don't have that choice. Well, I don't know how Satan became Satan then. <laughs> Unless God said, I'm making an evil. <laughs> That's just way too hard, too high for me. Maybe, I don't know, Joel, you have a sermon for that? <laughs> or maybe, Jerry, you have a sermon for that? I don't know. But he's given a choice. He's also given a grave consequence. It's my pleasure that you tend to this garden, that you eat of everything except for this one tree. But if you eat of this tree, I'm telling you right now, we're not having fellowship. He doesn't say it that way. He just says you're going to die. But I believe that's what death ultimately means, being without God. And so the choice is there before man. He gives him a law, gives him a choice, and that choice is God's desire, and a consequence if if we go against his desire. And I find that a beautiful thing. You know, one of the hardest things for me as a father in raising my children is giving them a choice. 
it's easy for me to simply say, do this. It's real easy. And then demand that they do it. But do you know what happens when, you, when you're that hard with your children? And it's a good thing, by the way, to be hard on your children. That's my opinion. <laughs> it's fun. To, no, it's not. <laughs> it's easy because when you're in a position of authority and you have the, the power to be able to make them do or not, then they don't live for your glory. They just live out of, I have to do it. And I don't like that. Maybe you do as a parent. I'd rather have my children want to do what pleases me. I believe that's the way God made us. If we simply had to have fellowship with God, I don't know if there would be as much fulfillment, if any, for God. I mean, if if I just made a robot and it always said, yes, Mitch, whatever you want. That robot has no choice if I, if I programmed it to only listen to me. But now, with my children, they can choose. And I said, now listen, right now I'm forcing you to do my will, but there's going to come a time when you will leave the house. Will you be pleasing to your father? I mean, they're going to have their own lives. They already do. But I want them to already, while in my authority... To not just do my will, not do mom's will, but to choose it of their own free accord. I believe that's the beauty of what we find here in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And so we go further then, and we see that man ultimately chooses what? You give them a choice, and what are they going to do? Mess it up, right? That's what happened. After she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, that it would be good to eat, and that it would be able to make men wise, she soon forgot all that was right before her. He soon forgot all that was right before him. And mankind ate, both man and woman. Man ultimately chose his own fleshly desires. And brethren, we do the same thing. We choose and we end up with the wrong choice. We do that often enough. But here's the beauty of what's seen in Genesis chapter 3. When we read what is taking place, we're going to read um, following on in the text. And I want to go on from the um, passage in verse, verse 7. And then we'll read on through verse 14 and 15. It says, The eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, man and woman, were open and they knew that they were naked. So they had knowledge that they didn't have before. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God, God, Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me tree and I ate. You know how what happens when you eat of the tree of knowledge? You start learning real quick how to defend yourself. 
and how to reflect or deflect responsibility and accountability, well, he was quick. Real easy to do. So in verse 13, the Lord God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And liken unto her husband, she's very quick, very smart. She takes the knowledge that she has and the wisdom, if you will, I can use that word very stretched. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And here begins the unfolding of the gospel message. You know, right now we're doing um, on Tuesday nights the, the Truth Project. And one of the things that, that you learn through this is when you go throughout and look at sin, you'll see it closely re- uh, linked to the word deceive and the word lie. Very closely related throughout Scripture. And here is the woman saying, Serpent, he deceived me. He is the father of lies. He represents everything that is not true. Everything that is against the truth. And so we go further then and we read what he says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you bruise his heel. So very clear as mud right now that when he says this, he's giving man in a means of implication Victory. He doesn't say it. He just says it to Satan himself. You're going to be crushed. You've done this. You've brought sin in this world. You've caused my creation, my crowning jewel, to lose that fellowship with me. But there's going to come a time when I seem fit that you will be crushed. And that's what the rest of the Bible is for. That's what we have. We have the history of of God's unfolding plan to bring man back into fellowship with Him, but it's all going to be based upon choice. That's why I believe the law was given in chapter 2. That's why I believe we had this whole concept of law and flesh and spirit all throughout Scripture, and it's a matter of unfolding, unraveling it, and making sense of this mystery, if you will. And that's what we will see through the Scriptures. Now, What we have then when we get to the New Testament is that very gospel message realized. We see the reality of God's scheme unfolded for men. That's what we're seeing here. It's just that before Jesus comes on the scene, it's like into a very early morning hour before the sun comes up and you look at the horizon out in the east and as the littlest of light is coming through, you kind of make through it. Are those... Is that a tree line? Is that some of the the hills in Tennessee? Maybe clouds? What is that? And little by little, the light shines and you get more information, more detail until all of a sudden everything comes into picture. Very clear, if you will, as day. And we see the truth when the sun comes up or comes into focus. Isn't that kind of what Peter says? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, somewhere around there, when, when he talks about the prophecies and how it was coming upon to men until they realize what's being said. 
Well, that's what we have. We have the gospel realized in Christ through the New Testament scriptures. And so when we read in the New Testament scriptures, we know these passages. It's been preached many, many times. We know that all men falls because of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, all the way through verse 23 following. So we know that we're all guilty because of sin. Every one of us in this room, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're told that it's a matter of us accepting that truth. We go further. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, the Gentiles were, specifically in verse 14 following, we're without hope. Because of sin, we don't have fellowship with God. We're, we're dead in the trespasses of our sin. We're separated from our God because of our sin. But while He is separated from us, like it unto man who's been taken out of that garden, He's still near. God is very near. To those who are seeking after God but do not have a relationship with Him because of Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ, He's near if you're longing and seeking after Him. By faith, that is. And unless you come to Him, unless you choose, which is what we're going to get to in the next slide, choose to come to Him, you're going to die in your sins. That's the reality of those who choose not to have a relationship with God based upon what God desires. And that's what we come back to. We come back to choice again. When we look at His choice, however... He made it very clear. Not always lead to heaven. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So we know that Jesus is the way. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, what this is like. And I want you to look at this picture, almost in metaphoric way, than what Paul uses it with the church at Ephesus. I want you to look at Ephesians 1. And see if you can go back to Genesis chapter 2, in your mind's eye, if you will. Let me get over there to the text. Ephesians chapter 1 says over here in uh, verse 17. Let me back up to verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What's that prayer? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Specifically, knowledge that gives life. When we're talking about this kind of knowledge, it's not a matter of, well, oh yeah, one plus one equals two. Oh, I know who Jesus Christ is. The scripture tells us He is the Son of God. You know, the demons believe in God, right? And they tremble. That's not the knowledge that we're talking about here in Ephesians 1, nor is it the knowledge spoken of all throughout the New Testament with regard to Jesus Christ. The knowledge that we're talking about is that you grow to not only know who He is, but be so very convicted that you believe to the point of even giving your life up to serve this one who came to the world to become the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as revealed to mankind. He's always been on the throne, but now it's revealed to us that He is the Son of God and that God has given Him His kingdom until He gives it back to the Father. This is the one, the kind of knowledge 
that takes you from death's grip and brings you back in the garden. That's what we have here with this choice. By choosing what God desires, then we see this contrast, complete contrast. And I want us to finish off by looking at Romans chapter 5. I want you to read um, with me in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, in this contrast. And tell me then, if you cannot see maybe more clearly, that shadowy gospel message in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, and then we'll, we'll focus in on verse 8 following. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him, through Jesus, that is. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We're back in the garden. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Out of the garden, death, if you will. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Fellowship again with God, if you will, back in the garden. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Through one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. From the very beginning, all we had was one law. One. Don't eat of this tree. You eat of it, you die. One law. And guess what? We messed up with that one law. We have one person by way of law fulfilling it. And through his flesh, condemning sin, condemning death, condemning, if you will, everything that is unrighteous, unholy, if you will. 
and brings everlasting life to those who choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Redeemer, as Reconciler, as Counselor. That's what we have. A choice. And that choice allows us to go back to a perfect setting again. By taking and eating of the fruit, man plunged into separation between himself and God. He falls from God's grace. By that choice. And by another choice, through Christ, we can now take and eat again. Think of the implications of this phrase, take and eat. Did we not just do it this morning? Isn't that kind of an irony? Because you can read in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood and, and God brings forth another law. You can eat the meat, but don't eat the blood. And here, Jesus says, take, eat of my flesh, my blood. It's just going back to the very beginning. That's the picture I get, at least, when I read Genesis 2 and 3 and when I read the Scriptures, for that matter. So we can take and eat. But ultimately, this taking and eat, I believe, is of life. Look at Revelation 22 and read the the first five verses after Jesus conquers death and after we see this, this reign that we have with Him in the Lord. And after this picture of the new Jerusalem coming from heaven, here's what we have. We have this garden picture again in this new city of Jerusalem, if you will. It says in verse, verse 1 of, of chapter 22 in Revelation, And he showed me a pure river of the water of life. Remember what was in the garden? Those four rivers? We've got another picture here. This one river. The river of the water of life. Clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life. The very area that God had sent man away from, when you read the last part of Genesis 3, they've become like one of us. They might partake of the tree of life. Now we have access to it again. Again, in the middle of the street, On either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. All the trees, every month. There's no out of season. You're always able to partake of this tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And like in the garden, tending to it, if you will. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them the light and they shall reign forever and ever. That takes us right back to the beginning. I may have stretched some of these analogies a little bit more than maybe the writer intended, but I just see them. It seems very appropriate. That's what we have. And so even from the very beginning, the gospel message is being proclaimed. This book of beginnings is not simply a history of man bringing us to the cross. It's the unfolding of God's plan from the very beginning. And those who open their eyes and look at the scriptures can see, just as given in the New Testament scriptures, was from the very beginning. So I want to ask you, 
What's your mind like? When you read Genesis, is it just a reading? Or do you see God's scheme of redemption? Do you see the gospel? There's more that we could have read. One of these days, we'll, we'll look at the thorns in Genesis 3. The thorns and thistles, I believe that's a shadow as well. I believe you can see it in Genesis. You know, from Genesis chapter 1, when He created light, the fact that He created, period, we see. Brethren, I hope that it edifies you, builds you up in what you read in Scripture. The good news from the very beginning is there for us. And we can share that to the lost. In fact, God wants us to share it with the lost. But He wants to do it of your free accord. Not just out of stewardship. Because there are so many that need that tree of life. And He desires for us to to provide that knowledge of Jesus Christ for all to be able to partake of such.